another pot of coffee is brewing. My third cup is almost finished. So that means it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, TV show marathoner, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. This week, I'm heading to Miami. And no, I'm not being accompanied by Will Smith or Jazzy Jeff. I have been wanting to do an episode about this show for absolutely ages, but the opportunity never arose because getting hold of the episodes wasn't exactly the easiest thing. However, this last week, Disney Plus gave me what I have been asking for for ages, and all of a sudden, seven seasons of my tween and teen years were available for viewing. I can give clues this week because if you haven't heard of this show, then I am not sure where you've been living, but it isn't on the same planet as I currently exist on. Clue one, it ran for seven years between 1985 and 1992. Clue two, the theme tune is probably one of the most well-known ones on TV ever. Clue three, it's about four women in their golden years. The last one should have given it away really quickly if the other ones didn't. But just in case, I am going to be talking about the Golden Girls. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. If you, like me, were a child of the 80s, there is no doubt in my mind that you'll hear that and immediately think either, oh, good grief, please stop singing, or have a memory of thinking, oh, yes, I wonder what Daft's and Olaf's stories Rose will come up with this week. The Golden Girls is about four women sharing a house in Miami. Three, Blanche Devereaux, Rose Nyland and Dorothy Zvornak, are in their early 50s, and Sophia Petrillo, Dorothy's mother, is in her 80s. The show was created by Susan Harris, whose name may not mean much to younger TV viewers who are more familiar with shows by Chuck Law, but in a way, she was the Chuck Law of the 70s and 80s. She was the creator behind shows such as Soap, which I loved, Benson, which I don't actually remember, and Empty Nest, among others. At one point, she had her hand in 11 different shows that were all on the air at the same time. That's pretty good going, if you ask me. The Golden Girls was only the second show to be produced under Disney's Touchstone banner. So in being aired on Disney Plus in the UK, it's actually come home. It was originally aired on Channel 4 over here. This show is a cast of award-winning actresses, though out of the original cast, sadly only one is still living, the beloved Betty White, who portrayed the ditzy country girl Rose. The other members of the cast were Rue McClanahan, who played the Southern Belle and Man-Eater Blanche, B. Arthur, who played strong and definitive Dorothy Zvornak, and Estelle Getty, who put her skill to playing a character 30 years older than she actually was. She played the outspoken Sophia Petrillo. I could go into detail about all the things I love when it comes to this show, from fond memories of childhood to the fact that it didn't push the older characters to the side in favour of people in their 20s. 
But what I love most about it is the fact that it shows life isn't over when you reach middle age. Sure, these women are mothers, grandmothers, and in the case of Sophia, great-grandmothers, but their life experience has value, and in The Golden Girls you get to see that shine. Of course, nothing's perfect, and there are certain moments within the show during which I really can't help but cringe. Jokes that haven't aged well, comments that are definitely inappropriate. In fact, in 2020, a single episode from season three, titled Mixed Blessings, was removed from the Hulu and Disney catalogue due to beliefs that it could be seen as racist. I haven't seen the episode for years, and obviously it's no longer available for viewing on streaming services, but the scene that caused the removal is one where Blanche and Rose are wearing black mud masks as part of a home spa when Dorothy's black future daughter-in-law enters the room. It was played for laughs and a comment was made about how they were wearing face masks and weren't black. And that is more than likely, understandably, the biggest issue that they had with it. As with the vast majority of comedies during the 80s, this is a taped show recorded in front of a live studio audience. Though often the laughter does sound just a tad canned. Not that I really care because I enjoy the show. Granted... Watching it this time around, I didn't get out quite as many laughs as I did on previous viewings, and I noticed things that irritated me that before would have just been water off a duck's back. I think that everyone who has seen The Golden Girls has a favourite, and even when I was a lot younger, for me, it was always Sophia. But I am going to give each of the girls equal attention because they're all amazing in their own ways. I guess you have to start with Blanche Devereaux. All the girls live in her house, and though when you get further into the story you forget that there was a point before the show when they didn't know each other, she actually had to advertise for roommates to move in with her. She clearly isn't short of a penny or two and has a very strong tie to her family history, though not exactly the closest ties to her family itself. Throughout the seasons, we get to meet three of her four siblings, Virginia, Charmaine and Clayton, The fourth sibling, Tad, appears in a few episodes of The Golden Palace, a very short-lived sequel series to The Golden Girls. We're also introduced to her daughter, Rebecca, though she actually has six children, so her and her husband got quite busy. And we also meet three of her grandchildren, David, Melissa and Aurora. Throughout the series, Blanche gives us a lot of evidence that she is a man-eater, but at the same time, it also feels as though she's playing this role that people expect her to play. Yeah, she goes out on a lot of dates. She flirts, she makes overtures, and generally plays up her southern charm as much as is possible. Jokes are made about her dating prowess, but that's as far as it goes. She's a natural-born flirt and she doesn't seem to mind that this is the opinion people have of her. Though there is a point where Dorothy takes things just a bit too far and it almost destroys their friendship. In a very early episode of the series, Dorothy is dating a doctor and while she's getting ready in another room, he comes on to Blanche and, convinced by Rose, Blanche mentions it to Dorothy. Of course, Dorothy, knowing what Blanche is like with men, doesn't believe her and accuses her of being a slut. And this is why she doesn't have any female friends. Understandably, Blanche is incredibly hurt, I think anyone would be, and demands that Dorothy moves out of her house immediately. 
Rose, Emma the Fixer, does her best. And eventually by using some very unusual techniques. And seriously, at one point, it really looks like she's desperately in need of the toilet. She's bouncing up and down on her by her knees. She manipulates Clayton into telling the truth. At which point, Dorothy realises how wrong she's been and begs Blanche for forgiveness. And of course, just when you think it's all over, Rose comes in as they're hugging. She's overjoyed and she adds, it takes a big woman to forgive someone for calling her a slut. It ends with a hug, but those are the last words spoken in that particular episode. Though Blanche is not so tied to her family and definitely doesn't share a closeness with either of her sisters, Virginia and Charmaine, she has a very clear loyalty to her family history and things that tie her to it. This is shown a few times in the series. The first time is in season one when the house is robbed and she is desperate because her family jewels have been stolen. They were her mother's and she has a very strong emotional attachment to them. In season seven, Blanche visits Atlanta to try and stop the demolition of her grandmother's plantation. She is so desperate to save it that she puts her own life in danger by handcuffing herself to one of the radiators. Before The Golden Girls was made, B. Arthur wasn't keen on the idea of the show. In fact, she hadn't even read the script. But after a bit of convincing from Rue McClanahan, who'd worked with her previously and told her that it was an amazing script and possibly the best thing she could do for her career. It was enough to get B. Arthur on board. At the very start of the show, Dorothy is a substitute English teacher, and she has very definite ideas for everything. She is confident, outspoken, and very much the take-charge one in the house. Dorothy is the one that everyone looks to for sensible and logical guidance when things aren't going quite right. So she is sort of the backbone of the friendship group. However, that doesn't mean that she doesn't have her moments. And when she has these moments, oh boy, do you know it. There's the disaster with Dr. Clayton that almost destroys her relationship with Blanche. The antagonistic relationship she has with her ex-husband, Stan, which, to be fair, I don't actually blame her for. And she can get emotional and stressed. She's a bit of a perfectionist, at least as far as she's concerned, and occasionally you can see that she loses her patience with her housemates, including her mother, but she manages to rein it in and rein in that desire to say something. Well, most of the time anyway. Her relationship with her mother Sophia is the most amusing thing for me to watch because they very clearly rub each other up the wrong way quite a lot. But they also love each other dearly and a lot of what they do is because they are trying to protect each other from something that will get them hurt. Dorothy also has a tendency to butt into situations that aren't exactly her concern, but she does it because she cares. Out of all the girls in the house, she's really the one who doesn't tend to share fantastical stories about her childhood. And I can't help but wonder if this has something to do with the fact that her mother lives in the house and anything that she made up would be immediately denounced as a lie. But at the same time, I think it also has a lot to do with the fact that she has her head screwed on the majority of the time. And as the voice of logic and sense in the house, she likes it that way. Her family definitely makes its presence known in the show, with her mother obviously playing a very important role in the lives of the other members of the house. Her ex-husband Stan also makes a large number of appearances, though their relationship is decidedly tentative. I have to be honest, I really don't blame her though. As I've said, 
given the fact that he left her after 38 years of marriage and waited until their daughter Kate's wedding to actually give her a chance to have her say. Her two children, Kate and Mike, also appear, as well as her sister Gloria. She has a younger brother, Phil, who Sophia mentions several times as being her least favourite child because he gifts her a Catholic with a cheese nativity at Christmas and in Sophia's own words, how can a Catholic spread a wise man on a Ritz cracker? B. Arthur's Dorothy is the only one of the Golden Girls who doesn't appear as a core member of the cast in the sequel, though she does make a couple of appearances through the 24-episode run. One of the main reasons, actually, that the Golden Girls came to an end was due to the fact that when her contract came up for renewal during season six, B. Arthur decided against renewing and had stated the seventh season would be her last as she wished to return to the theatre, which is fair enough. I mean, she was an incredibly good actress. In fact, they all are, or were. What would the Golden Girls be without Rose Nyland? Her home country naivety and constant tales of growing up on a farm are probably some of the core memories for many when it comes to the show. Unlike her friends, Rose has been unable to move on from her marriage, and throughout this series, we get to know a lot about her relationship with her husband, Charlie, and why it worked. We also find out pretty early on that one of the main reasons she has been unable to move on is because he died while they were having sex. And she is absolutely terrified that the next man she sleeps with will die. Unfortunately, in season two, <laughs> this belief is extended somewhat when her boyfriend, Al, dies in the same manner. There are many facets to Rose and it's easy to forget them because the most common thing that people recall is her endearing smile and calm ways. But that's definitely not where the story ends. She has a competitive streak about 10 miles wide, gets anxious very easily and partly because she is so sheltered, doesn't tend to judge anyone or anything too quickly. Later on in the series, we also discover that she is addicted to painkillers. Having recently watched the earlier seasons of the show, I realised I had forgotten a considerable amount about Rose, from the fact that she can be quite tough when she needs to be, to the realisation that she's not always sensitive to the needs of others. This is highlighted in the first episode when she comes home from work as a grief counsellor and starts talking about how she wishes they weren't so miserable. Her charming ways can sometimes cause huge misunderstandings, but the majority of the time you know that's it's coming from a good place. Her friends tolerate her stories of home and her childhood. One in particular sticks out because it's so peculiar. The story of Alice, the two-legged cow that has to be milked while sitting down. And this is the cow that's sitting down, not the milkmaid. But they aren't shy in telling her to stop when they've had enough. One thing that I really found incredibly interesting is the fact that the stories turned from when I was a girl in Minnesota to when I was a girl in St. Olaf, as though it was necessary to be more specific. This became her catchphrase. Rose definitely had a fascinating life. The daughter of a monk and a young girl, given up for adoption, spent most of her childhood in an orphanage. In the show, we get to see very little of Rose's family, though, to be fair, as an orphan who was adopted, she has no siblings. During her marriage, she had five children, though only two appear on the show, her daughters Bridget and Kirsten. 
Rose experiences so many ups and downs. In fact, though the others experience many difficulties in the series, Rose is the one who seems to go through the most. She loses her job, loses her widow's pension when Charlie's ex-employer files for bankruptcy. And in the last season, she suffers a heart attack, which sees her friends worrying that they're going to lose her for good. Rose is always willing to help. She volunteers for charity, has multiple hobbies, including bowling, though she's a very sore winner and an even worse loser and likes to get involved in everything. She's kind of the peacemaker. There's something so charming about her, whether it's the slightly Scandinavian way she talks, the story she tells or the fact that she is like the grandmother everyone wants to have. Sophia Petrillo is my favourite. I'm not sure what it is about her, though it has probably got quite a lot to do with the fact that she just says things how they are. But from the moment she appears on the screen in any episode, you know that she's going to deliver the best one-liners that you're going to hear. She's an 80-year-old woman who believes that life is too short to not say what she wants. If the stories that Sophia tells are to be believed, she was nearly a frozen pizza millionaire, engaged to her brother at one point, and was a witness to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre of 1929. Watching this back, I have to admit that I had forgotten Sophia had suffered a stroke and that this was given as the main reason for her outspoken manner. I'd also forgotten that she isn't in the house right from the start. She arrives on the doorstep while Blanche is waiting for a date to arrive with a story about how her nursing home caught fire. I couldn't help but wonder at the time and still now if she had something to do with it. She really doesn't make any secret of the fact that she doesn't believe she belongs at Shady Pines. Her blunt way and determination to say things as she sees them is just part of who she is. It's almost as though she knows that because she is a fragile elderly woman, or at least perceived as being one, she will pretty much get away with anything. Both Rose and Blanche will amuse her and say things like, Oh, Sophia, while Dorothy will call her mother out for things she says that are in any way inappropriate. In fact, it seems as though there is very little people will glare at her for. Though Blanche does get close when Sophia slaps David, Blanche's grandson, when he's behaving like a surly, spoilt teenager. Sophia's honesty is refreshing. And despite the fact that some of what she says can be mean, it's always taken with a pinch of salt. A perfect example of this is when Blanche jokingly says, Oh my, Sophia has a past. And Sophia responds with, That's right, but unlike you, I didn't need penicillin to get through it. Occasionally, you feel as though she's testing to see quite how far she can push Dorothy, Blanche and Rose. But then you see the genuine affection she feels for them and they for her and realise that this is just her way. Much is mentioned of how she brought up her children, especially Dorothy. She was a harsh taskmaster, but very proud of it. Just like Rose, Sophia uses her childhood in Sicily a lot. And just like Rose, has a way of starting all her stories, which gives you the idea that most of them are primarily fiction. Picture it. Sicily. She's a great storyteller, though, and her stories always end up with something like, and that's why, or, and that's how. She has a very colourful imagination or an incredibly colourful history. According to a lot of research I have read, Estelle Getty actually suffered really badly with her nerves, specifically with stage fright. 
In fact, by the end of the third season of the show, it was so bad that she was forgetting lines and someone was hired to help her run them before filming. Despite all of this, her performance was, I think, personally incredible and she made the character an incredibly memorable one for me. I don't think I'd want her as my grandmother because the home truce would probably sell me into a decline, but she'd be the sort of woman who would be an amazing companion when it comes to people watching. For all that it was a sitcom in the mid-80s, The Golden Girls was actually really ahead of its time in many ways. Sure, as with anything, there are a few problems that can be picked out, such as Rose's use of the term Indian giver when referring to Blanche and her concerns at donating a kidney to her sister Virginia, and then potentially having to ask for it back. I love the naivety that Blanche shows, thinking that she could get it back after it's been donated. But then you look at some of the topics that are actually brought up on the show and realise that it was looking at these really quite sensitive subjects that we still struggle with discussing and bringing them out into the open. One theme that comes up several times in the show is LGBT causes. Dorothy's college roommate is a lesbian who recently lost her partner and Dorothy helps her through her grief. Blanche's brother Clayton gets married to a man many years before it's actually legal in the US and his coming out actually happened six years before Ellen DeGeneres' episode on her own show in 1997. Coco, the housekeeper in the premiere episode who's never seen again, is also gay. I think it's a shame that he didn't get to stick around for the rest of the series as he would have been a good foil. However, according to research that I've done... It was decided that he would be drowned out because the four lead women have such strong characters. There's an episode about assisted suicide that also touches on the fear many go through when they're elderly, alone and sick. I've already mentioned Rose's addiction to pain medication. Yes, there were shows that mentioned addiction, but it was seen as something affecting the young rather than the elderly. And this brought that issue to light. There's even an episode that looks at abuse and how many different facets there are to it. Blanche's daughter Rebecca is in an abusive relationship which Blanche really wants to interfere in. However, her relationship with Rebecca is so tenuous and she doesn't want to push her away again. However, in her own way, Blanche is also piling on the shame and abuse when she and Sophia make fat jokes about Rebecca within her hearing. There's a lot to love about The Golden Girls, and it's a show I used to always watch when it was repeated, and that's probably never going to change. I know that it's not without its faults, but that's what makes the show what it is. I think one of the most interesting things about it, watching it now, is how it portrays older women. Blanche, Rose and Dorothy are women in their early 50s. In fact, they're the same age as Halle Berry and Jennifer Lopez, yet you don't see them wearing white wigs and talking about hot flushes, they still play the role of romantic lead or action star. Watching the show now, I'm forced to remember that I am just six years away from being the same age as Blanche and Dorothy. Yet I don't get a pension and I'm nowhere near the luxury of retirement. As a child, I saw this as a show about people the same age as my grandmother because that's how I thought they were. But now ageing is viewed so differently. These women were considered over the hill. The men they dated looked to be in their 60s and 70s. And I can't help but wonder if the Golden Girls would even work in 2021. 
In order for them to be retired and enjoying the garden of their lives, they'd need to be either incredibly wealthy or in their 70s or 80s. And that would definitely put a different twist on many of the storylines we saw in the show. I have heard that there are talks about rebooting it with a new cast, but personally, I cannot see how it would work. There is something about the Golden Girls that is so 1980s. Women in their 50s aren't viewed the same way anymore. And though that isn't necessarily a bad thing, coming from someone who is nearly there or getting there, I can't see how remaking this would make it better in this instance. Personally, I would leave it be and focus on making something new. Just in case you haven't checked the podcatchers since last week, a brand new episode of The Bookshop, all about Stephen King's only 1980 novel, Firestarter, is available for download now. We've come to the question and answer part of the episode. Yay! Hope you've been looking forward to it. Let me know if there are any questions you would like to hear me answer about the shows I watch, or if there's a show you really would love to hear me cover. So, here goes. Did I enjoy it? Yes, and I still am. There are over 170 episodes, and that means a lot of hours left to watch. I am watching them when I'm relaxing after work and during my lunch break, so it'll take me a bit of time to get through it all, but I'm really enjoying the memories that the little bits bring. Would I watch more? Absolutely. It's one of those shows that has aged, and some of it hasn't perhaps aged as well as other bits have but at the same time it's a show that I have incredibly fond memories of and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I love the stories of Cicely and St Olaf. I love watching the girls have the sort of friendship I wish I had. The fact that they didn't find each other until they were in their 50s gives me hope. So there it is my completely spoiler free general review of the amazing and almost perfect Golden Girls. You can find the show on Hulu in the US and Disney Plus Star elsewhere. So, how are things in the coffee household this week? You know how things seem to be going really right and then one tiny thing happens to shift your focus? Well, that was my week. It started off really well. I got up on Monday morning, checked my download figures. I have a bit of a thing about podcast stats, but then I think that most podcasts hosts do. And then I went about my day, which included sitting down at my desk and getting on with writing an article all about gardening vans. It's exactly as interesting as it sounds. So Monday was fine, a little long, but fine. Tuesday comes and I have a one-to-one with my line manager during which I make a point of asking her what management plans are for when Freedom Day arrives. For those who aren't in the know, Freedom Day in the UK is actually the 19th of July and that's the day when all restrictions on COVID end. Well, most restrictions, they're still going to be doing quarantines, I believe. She tells me that they haven't been finalised, but anyone who wants to change their work arrangements needs to put in a proposal. Legally, employers only have to consider rather than accept them. So that starts my nausea and a rolling in my stomach. That afternoon, an email is sent around from the company directors letting us know that following the PM's announcement that day, everyone without fail is due back in the office from Monday the 19th. 
cue panic that makes my head light and I end up puking. Such a great end to the day. At that point, the big freak out has started and no matter what I tell myself, I just keep on saying I will quit, that I hate everything and I'll just quit. Yes, I did repeat myself, intentionally. I sent myself into a tailspin. I can't stop the panic even though I have started writing my proposal. Instead of you're doing what you can, everything will be okay going through my head, all I can hear is they're going to say no. You're going to have to get on a bus every day and go and sit in a room with lots of people. You're going to be surrounded by people talking all the time. I took a few centering breaths and they did nothing. I felt absolutely helpless and all I could do was get more and more over the top with the plans for what I would do when they said no. Because no matter what logic was telling me, my brain was saying the answer will be no. You'll have to go in and then you'll be living in a state of permanent anxiety. The following morning, I got an email from my line manager asking me a couple of questions about the proposal I sent her. She asked me to format it and resend it as a formal request. And not two hours later, it was done. My proposal was accepted and I no longer have to worry. Tuesday is why this episode is out on Friday rather than Thursday. My brain went into revolt. My entire body seized up as though the world was coming to an end. And no matter what I told myself, no matter what my friend told me, and seriously, thank you so much for listening to my absolutely ridiculous and irrational ravings, I couldn't stop the panic. The really daft thing is, my social anxiety was never a thing. I wasn't ever really good in crowds, but that was more because I am not amazing at talking in a group of people. I get tongue-tied and worried that they're going to think I'm stupid, or else I babble so much that they know I am. I don't even like talking when the group is people I'm related to, and in fact, that's actually worse. The social anxiety reached a peak a few years ago, for no reason that I'm able to determine. I would get on a train and immediately struggle to breathe. I'd experience several panic attacks and quite often have to get off the train and wait for the next one. Some people may say that no one is great on a crowded commuter train to London, and they're not wrong. But I used to travel a lot on my own. I travelled to multiple states in the US, I went to work conferences, went to conventions, and then one day the panic attacks just started. I already had the issues with depression but they were something that I could live with. Yes, I know, suicidal thoughts aren't great. They really aren't. But I could still get on a train and go to the office every day and function relatively normally, unless it was a very bad day, even if I didn't want to be there. Part of my issue is with the lack of control I have over my environment when I'm away from familiar places. I can't control who sits next to me on a crowded bus or train, I can't control who stands over me as I sit at my desk at the office and I certainly can't control who swims so close to me in the swimming pool that their hands touch my feet. Well, the latter I did my best to control by going to the pool incredibly early and for the most part it seemed to work. I know that many people would say staying at home won't make this any better and they're right to a point but I am less used to a company if I can't concentrate and produce very little of the written content that I'm paid to provide them if I'm in the office, right? I have taken the easy way out in some ways, and I know this, but I also know that pushing myself into a situation where I feel out of control and therefore incredibly panicked is likely worse. 
I've put in a request with my doctor and my nurse to get an appointment to see a therapist. The waiting list is unfortunately much longer than it would have been 16 months ago because the pandemic has had a seriously detrimental effect on the mental health of many people. But I am on it and that's all I can do for the time being. In the interim, meditation, medication and pushing myself just a tiny bit outside of my comfort zone will have to suffice. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the listen and I will be back next week with more. Don't forget, the bookshop will be open again on Monday with my next review. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a review or a rating over on Podchaser. I really love to read what you've got to say. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at not before coffee podcast. Well, I need another drink as I definitely haven't had enough. Not alcoholic, by the way. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. <laughs>